Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to episode number 31 of the Young Contemptibles podcast. In this episode, I'm joined with, of course, Dominic Blythe of Living History UK fame. And he's going to be talking us through uh, some really interesting facts of the Salonica campaign, which I have to admit, I know very, very little about. And I do say a little knowledge is dangerous, but we'll find out over the course of this episode. So, Dom, how are you doing, mate? I am absolutely marvellous, Steve. And yourself? Hi, mate. Absolutely cracking. Keeping good. I'm actually really excited to learn about the Salonica campaign because it's something, as I say, I know very little about it. I'm I'm aware that obviously it happened, but I've never really delved into it too much. So, Dom, take it away. So glad that you're, you know, you're keen and interested into learning about the Salonica campaign. It's um, it's certainly a forgotten front of the Great War um, and often overlooked. Um, It more, more or less in the same way of the Italian campaign in the Second World War, it, it, that's how the Salonica campaign was during World War One. Troops who were serving in Italy in World War Two were called the D-Day Dodgers. And in the First World War, those serving in Salonica were called the Gardeners of Salonica because they were seen as essentially having this exotic Mediterranean holiday, despite them being in a very, very precarious and deadly situation. So the Salonika campaign itself has its roots before the First World War and doesn't really have its roots really with Britain at all. So as as you know, um, uh, the First World War started initially as a war between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Serbia. And Serbia is a very key player in this situation because the sort of the the nucleus of, of the combating parties um, starts between Serbia and Bulgaria. And Serbia and Bulgaria have not had a very happy relationship since they were deemed as independent principalities within the Ottoman Empire in the 1860s. And this sort of boiled over in in 1912. And in 1912, you have the First Balkan War. And this was 
all the Balkan states um, joined together and throwing off the shackles of their former Ottoman overlords. And so, um, so these were the countries of Greece, Albania, Serbia and Bulgaria all coming together as I say, confronting the Ottomans and pushing them back to what is now the footprint of modern-day Turkey and obviously at the time the rest of the Ottoman Empire. In 1913, the Bulgarians are hungry for power. They see the area, what is now the sovereign state of northern Macedonia, and they um, at the time it was part of it was southern Serbia. And Bulgaria has seen... Uh, Macedonia as being Bulgarian, and this is because it has a large portion of Bulgarian Orthodox Christians, but it also has an equal proportion of so um, of, of Greek Orthodox Christians and Serbian Orthodox Christians and Albanian Orthodox Christians. So it's a huge melting pot of a country. But Bulgaria saw it as theirs, and so Bulgaria again, hungry for power, they were they were known as the Prussia of the Balkans, and so they thought, you know what, we've done really well. We've got a huge army now after this first Balkan War. Sod it, let's go and do it. And so they go barging in, and then they have another huge falling out with Serbia. Nineteen fourteen rolls around, and as I said, you know great war is declared and as time goes on serbia they're they're being they're being attacked by the austro-hungarians to the north and it gets to september 1915 and bulgaria's economy had finally vaguely ready to uh to compete in a um, or take part in another major war so they then join on the side of the central powers so this is because the Tsar of Bulgaria, Tsar Boris, um, was related to Kaiser Wilhelm. I think they were cousins or something like that. Um, and so there were close links between uh, the uh, Kingdom of Bulgaria and and the German Empire. And so, yeah, they joined the side of the Central Powers. And again, the Bulgarians, they have their eyes on the prize. And this is... Um, Macedonia, as well as a part of Romania called Southern Dobruja. And so they basically, they steamroll into Southern Serbia using combined arms warfare, which as Heinz Guderian, Guderian, the German, at the time he was only a lieutenant, but he saw the Bulgarian combined arms warfare of artillery and cavalry uh, together, and which he would then eventually put into Blitzkrieg. Um, and so they use this this very new way of warfare to completely bulldoze into the side of, of Serbia. And this is where Britain and France get involved. Again, very, very convoluted way of saying it, but Serbia wasn't doing too well at all. Serbia was backs to the wall. And so an, ex- an expeditionary force of the 10th Irish Division of the, of the British Army which came from Salonika and a force of French troops. And they marched into um, to uh, southern Serbia, Macedonia, and to help defend against the Bulgarians. And so that, Steve, is really the beginning of what is now known as the Salonika campaign. Even though, ironically, Salonika, which is now the city of Thessaloniki, which was once upon a time the capital of the Macedonian Empire back in ancient Greek times, is it's a Greek city. And the reason why it's called the Salonika campaign, despite most of the fighting not taking part anywhere near the city of Salonika at all, is just because that was the main major hub. That's where the port was, where all the troops came in. So even though they're not fighting there, that's where the main hub was. So 
that's why it got the name of the Salonica campaign. That's that's really interesting, Dom. So the, the tenth Irish division, uh, they've entered south, uh, southern Serbia, um, and then the Serbian armies with withdraws to to Corfu. Now, what what's the sort of involvement with with Greece at this point? Where where are they in the war? So, believe it or not, Greece has not actually taken a side. Greece, up at this point in nineteen in in late nineteen fifteen. They're not even a combatant in the war. They have not chosen a side as a, as a state. They have not chosen a side. As, uh, to put it incredibly bluntly, the uh, the Entente have essentially invited themselves round to Greece, um, and so there's sort of two factors playing as part of of Greece's politics at the time. So you have the King of Greece. Um, Constant. It's probably Constantine. I can't. I cannot remember his name uh, off the top of my head. Um, because again, in a very convoluted way, in just like most European royalties, of course, he was related to Kaiser Wilhelm and the Habsburgs. So, in terms of the royalty, and then for technically the army, they were unofficially aligned with the Central Powers, but. The government of Greece, um, the prime, uh, the prime minister, whose name I'm not even going to bother trying to pronounce, something Opelopelopelopolis, uh, yeah, it's one of those names. Yeah, he because he doesn't really like how the war is going in Europe, and of course the rape of Belgium, etc. He's not too keen on the central powers. And so he, as a result, is pro-Entente. And you actually have a miniature civil war, and I believe it's called the Constitutional Crisis, where you you do have this huge rift within Greece itself. And it got so bad at one point um, to try and instigate Greece's, um, to try and force Greece's hand. I have no idea why they thought it was a great idea, but the French took their marines who were fighting Gallipoli and they actually occupied Athens. They they docked their ships and they stormed Athens. And there was a skirmish in and a battle in the streets of Athens itself uh, between the Greek army and the, these French marines. Um, and, you know, a fair amount of Greek, Greek and French troops died and no one really seems to want to talk about this a lot. And where you have... Yeah, you have this this battle on the streets of Athens, and there's a there's quite a there's a really good photograph actually of a French um, machine gun actually outside of the of the necropolis on the the ancient Greek ruins on the top of the hill in Athens, and so France tried to do uh, pu- pull this odd power move, and unfortunately to no avail, the French Marines just buggered off because not a lot really happened, and it was only until 1917 when the constitutional crisis in Greece finally sort of sorts itself out. And that it's only in 1917 when the Greeks finally join in the war. So it, it, that's why the, the British troops. So after, so in nine, late 1915, I've Serb, as you said earlier, Steve, the Serbian army retreats to Corfu, the, the forward elements of the, of the British troops there. So the 10th Irish division and, um, I think there were two French divisions. They're more or less surrounded. They're very much cut off. There are stragglers that managed to come back to Salonika itself. But in terms of those those forward forces, they're very much cut off. They're 
they're gone. They're taken prisoner, they're killed, captured, etc. And so in October 1915, when the bulk of the British troops start turning up, they stay in Salonika. They just, as I say, without even asking the Greeks permission, they just dock in Salonika and just say, right, this is this is where we're going to live now. And so they they set up a, a string of fortifications and a, a network of trenches around Salonika, and it's called the Birdcage Line. Um, so as, and the reason why is because you know we 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 caged ourselves in to defend Salonika um, to defend Salonika, and this is from a potential Bulgarian, German, and Austrian invasion, or it could even be against the Greeks. I mean understandable seeing as you know the british salonica force and the french just rocked up in in a city they weren't even invited to so that so you have the birdcage line is for is is formed and, and built um and it actually goes on the i think it's the kaiser actually actually jokes and says that the birdcage line is is the germans uh, be, uh best uh prisoner of war camp um because you know they didn't even need to do any fighting or even capture any allied troops to in order to imprison them. And so the war really stays dormant in on this front until really sort of early to mid-1916, round about sort of May time. And it's only then when uh, the British and French start moving forward. Um, and this was done with cavalry, mounted cavalry and bicycle troops uh, they were they were the forward scouting forces going up the hills to uh, north from Salonika um, and again a lot a lot of the roads were were very haphazard um, and so a lot of infrastructure in the area was built by the British and French troops and I believe there the main road heading north from Salonika today is actually called still called Oxford Road um, by the locals and that's because it was built by the 7th Battalion Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry um, when they were uh, building the birdcage line and preparing to move forward to the north. So yeah, that's sort of really what happens until that period of 1916. The, the lot of a lot of it just stayed static. The French managed it, did manage to pull their troops out to the southern border, uh, to the border, uh, the Greek Greek Serbian border, and sort of hold there. But the 10th Irish Division was was only a concept by that point. Um, and again, this is all happening in in Greece's back garden. And they didn't do anything out of fear of another attack on Athens or, you know, feeling the full weight of a, of a British naval blockade. Because you've got to remember, um, the British Mediterranean fleet was the largest fleet in the area. And that, you know, that could completely wreak havoc with Greece. And so they were really uh, in a catch-22 situation themselves. And so, yeah, this that, the situation, as I described, remain so until 1916. That's really interesting. So we've got, got this new sort of front opening up, being the Salonika front. Then at the same point up until very early 1916, that is, we've not only got Gallipoli as well, which is kind of being a, you know, a sort of damp squib, shall we say, for want of a better expression. But we've also, of course, got the Western Front. So there's three fronts at the very start of 1916 where nothing's really happening. It's just this war of attrition is is settling in. So I can sense from what you were saying that kind of post early 1916, things start to change. So what transpires? So 
Yeah, uh, quite quite right. So what transpires? So a lot of the troops that are now starting to pull out of Gallipoli, they're being sent to Egypt and they're now being refitted with more sensible equipment to be able to go and fight in, in the hills of northern Greece. Um, and I, that was a lesson learned from the 10th Irish Division who were still equipped with the khaki drill uniform from Gallipoli and a load of them froze to death um, because they were still wearing all the kit from Gallipoli. So, yeah, you you have this, again, this, this build-up of troops. And this is a preparation for what would then be called the First Battle of Lake Doiram. Uh, the French, they... The French were on the the left flank of of the British forces. Um, I think it's it, there's a se- there's a series of marshes, which sort of was the the dividing line between the British sector and the French sector. And then on the left of the French, the Italians rock up, and this was the Italians go all the way from Albania and then join up with the French. So now you've you've not only have you got the British and French, but you've now got the other allies coming into play. And so yeah, you have you have the Italians. Eventually in late 1916 you'd have the Russians rock up um as as well as many others. So yeah. So yeah 1916 you have the first battle of Lake Doiron and this is the first offensive push that the front makes. As I say, it's, this initial sort of probing attack was made by cavalry and bicycle troops. The cavalry were on more on the, the lower lying plains um, around the marshes on, on the left-hand side of the British um, flank and also on the far right where there was a lot of um, open areas where cavalry could could run around and do their thing as, as intended. Uh, the bicycle troops... Um, mostly operated in the mountains and so they're they're pushing up into and well towards what's um what's now modern day macedonia at the time it was it was serbia and the first thrust into it as part of the the first battle of lake doiron was a an action called the battle of horseshoe hill this is where the seventh battalion oxen bucks um went up a position called horseshoe hill named so because it look like a horseshoe on a map very very imaginative names here that's a very common feature um with a lot of these uh, a lot of these place names uh, so you so you have um this action on i believe it was a it was a lieutenant kurz later um later um uh, uh, yeah later captain kerr mc who basically he him and and a few and a few others they scrambled up the side of the hill and that was literally they saw the big big wooden stake that divided the two nations they scrambled back down the hill and said come on lads we're going to be the first troops you know back into serbia come on lads let's go get them and so he inspires the men and charges up the hill and they take and they take uh the first position on and then which is sat on the border then the position over and um, uh, because of the peaks of the hills, you know, they're so close together, but divided by these big valleys, uh, well, ravines, I should say, um, that it was noted after they took the hill, they could, at night time, they could hear the Bulgarians talking on the other, on the other side of the hill and they could, they could see them. They could see the, um, the colors of the uniform and the piping on, on the uniform. They were, you know, they were very, very close. Um, and they were all very confused about why the Bulgarians didn't initially um start and firing back from that position and that's because the bulgarians didn't even know the damn hill was taken by the british <laughs> so uh definitely uh elite um bit of miscommunication there on the bulgarians behalf but again well they eventually started did start taking on fire so 
you have the Battle of Horseshoe Hill, which was on terms of the Doran sector is sort of in centre left. Uh, then eventually the, the line sort of starts to spread out and they're starting now to pick up some of the old French positions that was left over from October 1915. And so you have positions such as um, Jumeau Ravine, um, Camp Hill and uh, La Tortue, La Tortue being the French word for the tortoise because the hill looked like the shell of a tortoise. Uh, a lot of these names of in this in this area would be French. Um, would have French names owing to the fact that they uh, were already mapped previously by the French. One speaking of maps and what have you in this period, um, one one huge issue that the British ran into was um, was topographical, and in in the sense that all the maps were rubbish. The only maps that anyone could actually find of the area were old Austrian maps from about 40 years prior. And some of them were very, very, very inaccurate. And also what didn't help is a lot of the villages on these maps no no longer existed because they were destroyed during the Balkan Wars. And so there was a, a lot, of, there was a huge um, problem when it came to trying to move before, the, when the line sort of flattened itself out um, to what it would be up until 1918 there was there was a huge issue before they started digging in and moving troops around because a lot of the time they didn't know where they are um, you know sometimes hills would would appear like two or three miles out um in in the wrong in the wrong place on a map and so you have there there's a story I quite like where a, a young subaltern with the royal engineers was sent out in february of 1916 um so just just as they just before they're about to make their way up. And um, it was it was a blizzard, so he couldn't see a hand in front of his face. Uh, but his commanding officer told him, you know, to, you know, take your team out and um, and try and redo some of these maps. Um, they did about two hours worth of work and then just went and hid in a brothel <laughs> instead of cracking on with the uh, with the map making. And so again, this this is an issue that was would be plaguing the British um, and and French as well that um, forces this poor quality of map up until 1917 until the the topographical situation eased itself. So yeah, 1916 was yeah again you have the you have the first Battle of Lake Doiron and se- and several other small skirmishes along the line, but first uh, first Doiron in in June, I'm sure it is June, in June 1915. June or July. Let's go with one of those two. That's when you have this major action, line levels out, and again it goes to static warfare. And the re- and the, one of the big bugbears that of, of of why nothing could happen is just because of the heat. As some of those of some of you who listening who have been on holiday to that part of the world in summer, it's very very hot. And so, as you can imagine, you're trying to fight a campaign. It, uh, you know, it's in 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 a wool uniform. It's it's going to be very very uncomfortable. And one thing that hampered the Brit uh, the the Allied forces is disease. Disease in the Salonika campaign killed more men than what the Bulgarians did. Uh, to the extent of the the Seventh Ox and Bucks, at one point they own uh, you know out of a full battalion strength, they only had two hundred men. Who were actually fit for front, fit for frontline service because they were the only ones who weren't coming down with sickness. We're talking stuff like malaria, uh, cholera, camp fever, um, 
and yeah, trench fever, uh, dysentery, uh, all these horrible diseases. Obviously, now we're very very thankful that we um, you know we have inoculations, but obviously back then that the the knowledge wasn't necessarily there. I mean, for goodness' sake, talking of cholera, the prevention during the Great War for cholera was to wear a woolen belt because they believed that the quivering in your stomach after having diarrhea was shivering. The spasming of your stomach muscles was shivering. And so cholera was, was um, they knew that it was caused by dirty water, but they also believed that it was caused by a cold stomach and abdomen. So to prevent against cholera, they would give you a woolen belt to wear around your stomach, which obviously to, 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 our, to us now, that's mental. But back then, no, that's how, that's how you're going to, help you in also the same way that to prevent sunstroke they used to issue something called a spine pad which was a quilted um cotton pad that you would wear buttoned to the back of your shirt and it was believed that the sun would what the sun would heat up this bit of cotton padding on your back and draw the heat away from your body no it doesn't it just makes you warmer but pseudoscience of the time dictated so that that it worked and these issues plagued the British army. I think at one point you have, in 1916 alone, you have something about 10, 11,000 hospital admittances of malaria. In these ravines is stagnant water, and in stagnant water, mosquitoes lay their eggs, eggs that are filled to the brim with malaria. So the eggs will hatch from the stagnant water, and they'll then go and bite, bite Tommy, send, sending him down with, with malaria and so these issues they were absolutely cutting through the british salonica force like like death scythe and so no offensive actions during the summertime could be done at all i mean even even sentry duty uh, well um standing on sentry was an issue not only because of disease but because of the heat and this was you have instances where whole swathes of line would only be manned by five men because it's just too hot to be stood in a trench. In 1916, it was it was they when they were performing the first battle of Lake Doiron, um, it was actually said that to wear this, it was actually too hot to wear the steel helmet before going on the offensive. So what they would do is they would hold hold their helmets by their chin straps whilst advancing towards the enemy, and only when they were starting a bit to be shelled, they'd finally put them on because wearing the damn thing was just so unbearable, and so. 1916 up until more or less October nothing happens the the army is just is just stood still battling with disease battling with sickness battling with the heat yes yes they you know they were making like what you see in Gallipoli they were making small villages out of out of ration boxes um, they were making swimming pools and tennis courts, you know, to try and keep themselves bu uh, busy and keep themselves cool. And that's where they, they have the, um, the nickname, the Garden of Salonica. The press, you know, the, the press lapped it up because it was seen as, as a failure of, of the war office because, you know, these blokes were having a summer holiday. No, they weren't. They were going through hell. Yes, they weren't being shot at, but the, just the conditions that they had, they had to go through um, – is you know just mind-boggling. If if you weren't coming down with cholera, you're being bitten, bit uh, you know being eaten alive by by bloody malaria-ridden mosquitoes. All all was in um, you know about forty-degree heat. That doesn't sound like fun. That doesn't sound like a bloody summer holiday, if you ask me. 
Sorry, Stephen, that's got me quite rattled. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's sort of the general gist of, of, of 1916. It's certainly a very, very under sort of um, represented period, not just in living history. I think we'll come on to that towards the end of the episode. But just um, you know, people, people talking about the um, general knowledge. It's, well, it's not general knowledge, this kind of period, which is quite interesting. It's a real unsung part. Of the first world war the first sort of time where i, I came across this um this whole sort of campaign was um via the uh, the famous uh ab64 that fell into my possession uh named to arthur griffiths which has been reunited with the, the family now but he was actually he was wounded on the macedonian front in uh, uh, i think it was in uh, april 1917 if my memory serves me well and that kind of uh galvanized my interest uh delving further into this uh, sort of unsung front, as I call it. But um, it's always down to time with me. I never seem to have enough time to go into it, but sort of scratching the surface of your knowledge uh, on this particular subject, I know that there's a lot more lurking within. So we've got this stalemate of 1916, the typical quintessential uh, stalemate of the First World War, shall we say. But then things start to change, don't they, after this, from, from what I can remember. So there's um, the Seven Nation Army you talked about, not to be confused with the White Stripes, of course, albeit a very good single, as I'm sure we all know very well. Where, where, did, the, where did the breakthrough and the sort of, where did the stalemate end and where did the breakthrough um, happen in this particular um, sort of uh, front at the time? So the... the f- just like in uh, on, on the Western Front, you have you have you know you have the Battle of the Somme in 1916, and then you have uh, Third Wipers in 1917, and these were attempts to break the stalemate, a grand offensive to to push through the uh, the German lines, and this was no different uh, on the Salonika Front, and um, and this was what would then become to be uh, come to be known as the Second Battle of Lake Doiron. So, in as so as you said, um, the um, about the paybook that uh, we received. So he was wounded in in May in May nineteen seventeen, and this was the opening chapter. Well, the well, so, so May nineteen seventeen. So May nineteen seventeen is the offensive happened. It oh, the initial offensive didn't go on for that long. It was a very short-lived offensive because of how futile it was, and so and most of it happened around early May, um, round about, if memory serves correctly, around the eighth, ninth, and tenth. These are the main dates when it comes to the Doran sector, and so you have this this huge offensive, um, a lot of the technology that was bit now in 1917 a lot of the technologies being used in the Salonika campaign was considered on the western front as being old hat and this is stuff you know in 1917 the concept of a creeping barrage had only just reached them they were always the last to receive the the new kit the, and and the new doctrine and and this is because of the there's the rid- ridiculously long logistics a train that had that had to feed them and so and so he, yeah, a lot of this stuff yeah the creeping barrage for instance was was brand new tech was obviously old hat by 1917 standards but when it comes to the salonica campaign 
this was brand new tech. Um, they couldn't get enough guns. Western Front was always seen as being the main campaign. So all the all the brand new guns and as much artillery as Hay could possibly sink his teeth into was being sent to the Western Front. And it was Salonika campaign. The the commander of the British Salonika force basically had to beg the war the war office in the, in his letters and his diaries. He writes how he begs, you know, for equipment. It's he's. He's, he says that basically he's been been pushed into his troops have been pushed into a corner. Um, the war office has been influenced too heavily by the press, um, and yeah, and so in terms of as I said, the second battle of Lake Doran, that the the, the, uh, the Royal Artillery are undergunned. They don't have the right guns for the situation. They're using field guns in a hilly environment. That ain't going to work. And you can't fire over the top of a hill with a field gun. You can only fire straight on. And if you put your guns on top of a hill, well, the Bulgarian on the hill in front of you, well, with his nice, great, big, brand new German howitzers, well, he's going to make very short work of the battery you've just put up there. And because of the hilly terrain, moving guns and doing anything like that is a logistical nightmare. So, but they try. They 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 put what few guns they have into position and they make these grand these grand plans of striking the Bulgarian positions on the hill on the hills such as Petit Corone and La Tortue. Not La Tortue, um yeah, Petit Corone and Grand Corone and many other different Corones. Again, all French names. And the Corones were the um the Bulgarian positions and the Bulgarians had a lot of time to, to dig in. It has been described by some Bulgarian scholars as uh, the Balkans equivalent to Verdun. And the reason why is because where Lake Doran is and where the whole sector is, that is at the, um, there's a mountain range that uh, there's a mountain, uh, a valley, I should say that leads directly to Sofia. And that is the, from Greece, that is the easiest route into Bulgaria. So to the Bulgarians, that's the gateway to Bulgaria. They are not letting the Greeks or anyone, you know, storm the gates. So they dig their heels in. The Germans, they cannot offer um, men, but they do say, here is a check, write a number on it. And that is how much steel, how much concrete and how much rebar we can give you. And so the Bulgarians dig themselves in that it, it was probably the most heavily defended front during the great war. I can say that without a shadow of the doubt, the, def- the defenses that were dug by the Bulgarians using um, Serbian slave labor um, and, and B- Bulgarian peasants who volunteered and were volunteered also marginally, uh, arguably slave labor. Um, what they dug was, was an incredible feat of engineering and so, by the so the few guns the British could bring to bear were were very inadequate for the task they had to perform. And so, and again, and this is so the and this is what I we bring back to what I said earlier about um, the maps not being too good. So again, I, to use Seventh Ox and Bucks as an example. So, in on the 9th of May, nineteen seventeen. The offensive start. So the Seventh Ox and Bucks are coming from a position called La Tortue, as I said earlier, and they their target was Petit Corone, again a very heavily fortified and defended Bulgarian position. And to get um, 
between these two hills, which were facing each other, they had to go down a series of uh, ravines. And what's bisecting the two hills is what's called Jumeau Ravine. And it's quite deep and it's very, very steep sides. And the battalion was expected to climb a very, very steep hill. Um, almost um, in some places, it was almost it was almost sheer cliff, and they were expect they were expected to scale this. And so, because of a cock up with the with the map making and underpowered artillery, you have you know you have these poor lads who are stuck in this ravine trying to scramble their way up towards the Bulgarians. Who are being not only being you know being shelled by by our own artillery, but being shot by the Bulgarians. And there is actually a story of one of one point during the action where even the Bulgarians just stop shooting because they know that, you know, even some of the Bulgarians realised that the position that the British troops were being put in was just, was just atrocious. And there was, you know, there's quite a heartwarming story of, of Bulgarian troops actually cheering on a British um, uh, pair of stretcher bearers, um, you know, trying to get casualties out and stuff like that. And that's, and you have a lot of MCs being awarded, um, to um to medical officers especially captain beaumont um who was who was awarded um the military cross at this action as it was noted that he tended to the wounded with bullets um around his head to uh, the i believe it's something along the lines of uh, to as little nuisance as flies uh, and you know that's you know the stout the you know the stout nature of these individuals you know dealing with this int- incredibly atrocious situation. It's you know it's 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 a, it is more you know you, you can compare it to the Battle of the Somme, but again, as you've got to think as well, a lot of these blokes, some of them by Western Front standards, they wouldn't have been fit for action uh, again because of various illnesses. Um, and a lot of units were incredibly understrength because of, as I said earlier, stuff like cholera, malaria, and syphilis, um, amongst many amongst many other things. And so you have put a fine, no fine point on it. It was, it was absolute bloodbath. And just as as we see on the Western Front with Passchendaele on the Somme, it was supposed to be this grand offensive to break the stalemate, but did it? No. And after that, the front in general, seems to winds back down again. It settles in for the summer slog against disease. Um, and, you know, this is for the, the fight against disease, the fight to preserve water. And really, it this you have, a, again, few other skirmishes. You do have quite a lot of cavalry action in, in the marsh region, um, a lot of Bulgarian on British cavalry action, but nothing major. And it this sits dormant until summer of 1918. So yeah, again, nine, 1917 was again just there with the grand plans. The foundations were there for something big, but towards the end of 1917, Bulgaria was not in good shape. It, it, in um, at home, the Bulgarian population was starving. You would have it. You were having bread rights. The economy in Bulgaria was starting to go to fuck. It is it, so uh, because you know they 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 fought the Balkan Wars beforehand, and now they're funding another great big war. The economy is it, it's the arse is falling out of it, basically, and so and this this sets the stage for what was eventually to come. So I'm judging by that. It's fair to say that there's 
the shades of what's happening in Germany in terms of lack of lack of food and in, in some aspects arguably lack of morale the sim much similar is well not too dissimilar thing is happening in in uh, in Bulgaria then by the sound of it yeah very uh, yeah very much so the yeah the, the civilian situation was was terrible and you know there I believe there were even some calls for the Tsar to actually abdicate as early as 1917 because of it so we launched into 1918 which we of course know is the well is the is the year that the war I wouldn't say ended because we all know it officially ended in 1919 but uh, that's when the armistice was signed and hostilities ceased so what what happened explicitly on the Salonika front or Macedonia front as we should call it I suppose by this point what exactly uh, were the circumstances that led up to the war um coming coming to an end because I'm I'm aware I don't know if our listeners are but it'd be interesting to go through it it was, it was a couple of months before the uh, the Western Front uh, the, you know, sort of uh, came came to an end. Um, I think it was September, wasn't it, nineteen eighteen? Dom, you're the man for this. You take it away. Yes. So you're you're quite correct there. So as as we all know, an armistice was signed in November nineteen eighteen, and this was between Germany and the Entente. But in September nineteen, well, it wasn't really an armistice that we. It was, Technically, it was an armistice. It was an armistice and surrender, really. In September 1918, the first um, peace negotiations were set were, were um, were started, and this was Bulgaria again. As I said earlier, uh, Bulgaria's situation was precarious at best, and this coupled with a a grand offensive um, in September 1918. Basically, it it was um, yeah the writing was on the wall for Bulgaria. Basically, and so uh, you alluded to it earlier. The, this this seven nation army, and in September nineteen eighteen, you have the third battle of Lake Doiram, and this was a force that was which was made up of essentially most allied nations. So you've got the Italians, you've got the British, you've got the French, you've got the Russians. In the Aegean Sea, you even have a Japanese um, flotilla of destroyers. Um, you and of course you have uh, various uh, colonial assets. You have the uh, the Vietnamese. Um, well, at the time that it was uh, French Indochina. Of course, you have French Indochinese troops there. You have Indians. You have Australians. And so you have this this huge melting pot of of allied troops there, and of course now um, you've you've got the Greeks, and this is the first time the Greeks finally get the teeth sunk in um, to the wall. And so what happens is, uh, as I, as I, as I said earlier, the all the technology was finally being was finally being brought in. So now they've they finally got gas. the The allied troops have finally got this new marvelous invention called poison gas. And so the idea was two weeks leading up to this grand offensive we're going to lob a crap load of shells at them and the morning before we're going to gas the buggers and then we're going to go over the top go up the hill smash the crap out of them and all will be good and that's what they did except by the time the allied troops got into the bulgarian positions there was no one there they were abandoned this was on the 20th of september 1918 but and by the so british troops got there they're all abandoned because the bulgarians had already buggered off they'd left 
they've thrown the towel in without throwing the towel in. They, they in Bulgaria, I believe the the it's a Firic victory or a um, as a Bulgarian described it to me, uh, what they called a pirate. I think they called it a pirate victory. So they lost the war without losing a battle. They could still keep their heads held high, knowing they didn't lose the fight. Well, lose lose any battles. So they could march back into Bulgaria under you know marching behind the colours under the sounds of their bands, but they lost the war and that was the option they chose. And so on September the thirtieth, nineteen eighteen, Bulgaria signed an armistice and then ended that part of the war. And this set, then set into motion, um, just as what happened in Germany in uh, December nineteen eighteen in the nineteen nineteen. Um, an occupation, a British occupation force of Bulgaria. Um, but mostly, most prominently, an area called Southern Dobrogea. Well, as I've said, and I'm sure you, you, you'll agree with this mantra, so it, part of the war, the first, well, first war, a great war, of course, both the same thing, but there we go, um, different names, definitely underrepresented in the hobby. Um, I can't recall ever seeing a group portray any nationality or any force specifically from that campaign which is a little bit sad really because we, you, you talk of you know how how important the front actually was and how many people were involved all these different countries and powers this multinational force and it's it seems to have largely been forgotten really but specific to obviously our sort of forte being living history why do you think that is doc because people don't know about it simple as that really when you say the Salonika campaign to someone in, in the hobby, you, you talk to another living historian, they'll they'll either look at you just like you hopped out your spaceship or they'll go, oh, yeah, I think I've heard about that. Other than that, that's generally the only response. Or it, you've got these, you know, these two extremes. You'll have people who have either little or no interest or you'll have people like me who have a very strong uh, interest and passion for for the campaign. And it's... It's a shame to see, really. But at the same time, though, in terms of living history, it's in in terms of getting a location to to do it properly. It's um, it can be quite difficult to do because there's not really many locations that have events that lend themselves to um, northern Greece. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's that issue. But in in terms of like kit and what have you. As that's uh, obviously a large focus of um, of the hobby. There's no difference in kit at all. The only the only difference is um, depending on your unit and depending on the on what regiment you're portraying. It's um, so, um, between the months of May and September, they were wearing sun helmets and getting a decent reproduction Woolsey pith helmet is uh, very difficult. But if you're doing sort of October 1915 the kits out there it's it's easy to get and but the only reason why people don't really tend to do it is because it's it's not the western front it's not the Somme it's not these these huge um it's not these these huge battles that you know they they've had films and a plethora of books written about them that's it's it's not interesting because there's very little written on it i mean and so, but yeah, it's it's down to the individual. Can't people do it? It's something that needs light shed on it. 
people have relatives out there, bloke, you know, British troops served out there. And it's, you know, it's almost like the Macedonian, uh, not the Macedonian, um, the Mesopotamian campaign or the Palestinian campaign. The only people I've ever seen doing the Palest- uh, Palestinian campaign is a group in Australia that do the Australian Light Horse. There's an awful lot of fronts that are that are very neglected and simply put, it's because they're not the Western Front. In terms of maybe you know, family members, uh, you know, sons of, of um, you know, these, these guys who took part in it, moving through like to 1920s, 30s, 40s, it was more because the Western Front was closer to home, it was therefore more um, interesting to them, shall we say. Um, but then it's kind of the same with the Second World War. You mentioned the D-Day Dodgers at the start of this. You know, history hasn't been kind to them. I don't think it's been kind to the blokes that took part in Salonika either because they gave in, you know, an equal contribution to the war effort, but they've been seemingly overlooked. It perhaps doesn't have, dare I say, the, the glory and charm, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, as particularly the, the Battle of the Somme, for instance, has uh, seemed to be, hasn't had that fair story told but yeah living living history it's an interesting one and i know for for a while you've campaigned yourself should we say to her uh, to get some of us uh you know portraying salonic or at least doing an event that sort of uh brings brings that part of the of the war to uh to the to the masses and I, I, i'd be up for that based on the conversation that we've had tonight and the information you've put forward i'd be really interested and keen to to get you know, an impression together and us doing an event. And when people, the public come up to us and say, oh, it's really interesting. Are you doing the Battle of Cambro or the Battle of the Somme? And we can say, well, no, actually, we're doing, um, you know, the Battle of Horseshoe Hill, for instance. That'd be something a little bit, a little bit different, wouldn't it? So, so there we go. But I've also, in the, in the run-up and anticipation to this uh, episode, I also stumbled across a, a website, which has been quite interest, interesting. So if anyone's after any further reading on the subjects, the, uh, website is the Salonica Campaign Society.org.uk. I'll put the link in the bio if you want to do some more further reading and brush up on uh, on the history of the Salonica campaign. But uh, from from myself and of course from Dom, thank you very much for listening to the episode. Hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll see you back in episode thirty three.